So why this title, I Spy With My Little Eye? Uh, you know this phrase, I spy with my little eye, and I'm seeing some head nods, which it's good. You know this phrase because you've played this game. Okay, you've played this game. Can you remind me your name? Uh, Judy, and then Kai? Kai, yeah. Kai, can you explain to me how this game works? Yeah, you, you give a hint on what you're seeing, right? Now, I don't know what you're looking at, right? How about this? You and I play right now. Can we play right now? Okay, you, you be the spy and I'll be the guesser. Okay. Something green. Ooh. Um, something green. It's not your shirt, is it? No. Okay. Now he's going to give me another hint, right? You're going to give me another hint? Okay. It's over there. Okay. I spy with my little eyes something over there. Is it Kevin's shirt? I guess you, that's kind of bluish green. Oh, the uh, broom handle. No. Which one is it? Just tell us. Exit sign? Oh, there you go. So, yeah, you know this game because you've probably played this game with your children. Maybe you played it with your grandchildren. I spy with my little eye. I thought we could have this title for the next few weeks as we have a sermon series on Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is the story that we're going to be studying for the next few weeks here. I spy with my little eye. And the reason why I thought this title would be so appropriate is because it speaks to the senses. It speaks to the sense of sight. Just a quick review. What are our five senses? We have smell. Uh, what is the most recent thing that you smelled with your nose? Maybe it was flowers blooming. I know my wife is looking forward to the lilac bush around our house. Uh, what's the other sense that we have here uh, that we have? We have smell and what else? Taste. Yeah. What's the last thing that you ate that was sweet to your taste? Or maybe sour, if you like sour, or tangy, or salty. Maybe it was a bag of potato chips. I hope you didn't eat one whole bag of potato chips in one sitting. Um, if you did, then you and I have something in common. So uh, another sense that we have, we have touch. Touch, right? Have you ever ran your elbow by accident into something and your funny bone uh, did not seem so funny at all? Right? So that's touch. And then what's the last, uh, what's the other one that we have not talked about? Hearing. Right? Oh, you lose that. How many of y'all here have lost your hearing? How many of y'all need to? <laughs> Stan's like saying so-and-so. Um, so hearing is another sense. When's the last time you heard a beautiful song? Or the birds chirping? Maybe it was this morning when the birds were chirping right by your um, bedroom window. So those are our five senses, right? Touch, um, smell, hearing, uh, sight is what we're going to be talking about today. 
So I spy with my little eye. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts. And before we go to Acts chapter 9, we're going to go to Acts chapter 7. For us to appreciate Saul's conversion story, we have to connect his story to Stephen's story, Stephen the martyr. And while you're turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, I just want to emphasize how important sight is. You might, have rem- you might remember that Thomas Fuller, the 17th century English clergyman, once said that seeing is believing. That seeing is believing. And you might have even said this statement in the past, that I will believe it once I see it. So sight, I believe, is important to one's faith. And we're going to see that in this story today, especially with Saul. But before we go into Saul's story, let's look at Acts chapter 7, verse 54. For us, to appreciate Saul, uh, for us to appreciate Saul's story, we have to know Stephen's story. And at, up to this point, in Acts chapter 7, verse 1 to 53, Stephen has given a testimony that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he connects Jesus all the way back to Abraham and gives this, this wonderful sermon of a timeline on how Jesus is connected to all of these characters and how their stories prophesy or foretell the story of Jesus. So now we come to verse 54. It tells us here that as Stephen is speaking to the leaders of the Sanhedrin, uh, religious leaders, mind you, It tells us here in verse 54 that when they heard this testimony, this sermon, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, with his little eye, he looked up to heaven and what? He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Furthermore, Stephen yells this out. He says, I spy with my little eye the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Never did I think we'd put Stephen's name next to a kid's game. But you know what? There's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that. With his beautiful eyes, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What I see happening here is that Stephen is having, I guess you can say, an uh, an overload of joyous emotions, of senses. Sensory overload is what we can call it. Sensory overload of joy is what he is experiencing here. And this is crucial. This is important because in just a few seconds, in a few minutes, in the context of this story, Stephen is about to get stoned. And one of the most beautiful things he sees right before he dies is Jesus I spy with my little eye Jesus standing on the right hand of God. 
Now here he is. He's having this sensory overload of joy. He's opening himself up to all of his wonderful senses and what happens to the people that are listening to him. At verse 57, it says, At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Whenever I read that part, rushed at him, I think of a football team, the linebackers and cornerbacks and safety and edge rushers going for the one person that has that football. And then they tackle that guy. But the thing is, football, you get back up, sometimes with an injury. But you don't die in football, unlike Stephen. Stephen is getting bum-rushed here by this group of people. This group of people, here's what the Bible tells us about this group of people. They are covering their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. You've probably seen that before, right? Where have you seen it? Babies? Children? when they're having a hard time coping with the situation. I almost picture this before they bum rush him. I, I almost imagine that they're, I imagine that they're closing their eyes. They're covering their ears and then they're yelling. That's a very childish action. Yeah. If you can see Richard here, he's doing a very great imitation. Um, but, but Richard's right. I mean, it's a very childish action that sometimes we as adults do as well. Here's something I want to point out. One of the first lessons to this sermon is that while Stephen is opening himself up to his senses, to experience God, to see God, perhaps the last time before his eyes are permanently closed, he's experiencing his senses while these people are wanting to close up. Stephen is opening up. These people are closing. Uh, they're closing down, right? They're trying to push back. That's what they're doing here. That's what that expression does when, when you don't want to listen. So you cover your ears. And just to make sure you don't even hear one thing at all, you're going to yell. Talk about senses. Then verse 58 says, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now Saul comes into the picture. Why is that significant that the Bible tells us that these people laid their clothes at the foot of Saul? Because it was customary back then that if you're going to execute someone by stoning, you would need to take off your cloak. And that's the piece of clothing that these executioners are taking off. They're taking off their cloak. The cloak was a very important piece of material for people back then because they used it as bedding. It would also protect them from weather elements. And so they're taking off this cloak and then they're going to put it, as custom has it, next to the feet of the person that is approving the execution. So what does the Bible tell us here? The person 
that is approving the execution, that is ordering the execution of Stephen, is a young man named Saul. And the fact that this part of the Bible says he's young, it means then that as a leader within the Sanhedrin court, he surpassed a lot of other people that are older than him. He's smart. Saul is smart. Saul is brilliant. Saul, as we're going to see in a little while, is very tactical too on how he hunts down the early Christians. Saul is a really bad man. And I'm not talking about the Michael Jackson uh, slang of the 80s and 90s that bad meant cool or bad meant awesome. No, he is really, really a bad man. Verse 59 tells us that while they were stoning him, they've already started to stone Stephen, to hurl rocks at him. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I believe Stephen said that also for Saul. Lord, do not hold this sin even against Saul. When he had said this, Stephen's eyes closed and fell asleep. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This man is not a nice man. This man is passionate for the job that he's been called out to do. And his one job at this point, from what we see in the Bible, is to extinguish the church called the way. That's what the early Christians were called first. Or the, the uh, movement was called the way. So th that's his purpose. Now, can we say Paul or Saul, this is before he becomes Paul, I'd like to say that Saul is a faithful man. He is. Now, he might be blind to what his faith is on, but he is a faithful man. Remember, he is a leader of the Jewish church at that time. And because he's a leader of the Jewish church, he wants to protect their religion. He wants to protect Elohim. Little does he know and understand that Elohim gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, for us to believe in him. He's missing that part. So Saul, all the while, he's convicted and he is doing what he thinks needs to be done to protect Elohim, to protect our church, to protect the people. We need to root out the way. We need to destroy the way. So then you advance through chapter 8. Even though uh, what chapter 8 is all about, even though the church is facing persecution, it continues to grow. It continues to grow. Then we come to verse 9 or chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. While the church grows... Saul, verse 1, my Bible says Saul was still 
breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. This term breathing out comes from the Greek word empneo. And empneo means to breathe in and out deeply, to breathe in deeply. The sad thing you can see here is that the very thing that Saul is breathing in deeply is hatred. Hatred for the early church. Then Saul gets wind of where the Christians ran to. He hears and he sees with his little eye that Christians have ran to Damascus. Have you ever wondered why he was on his way to Damascus? It's because he wanted to hunt down the Christians that were in Damascus. A quick background about Damascus. Damascus is one of the oldest cities there is in the world. Uh, A lot of uh, uh, Jewish historians believe that that is the site. The city itself is a site where Cain killed Abel. So this is a very significant city for for these people. And now there are early Christians of the way movement that are hiding in Damascus. And the Bible tells us here in verse two, that Saul asked for letters from the high priests to the synagogues in Damascus. And what this pretty much means is that Saul has permission. And this is what I Uh, why I said earlier that Saul is a very tactical man. I'd like to paint the picture that Saul at this moment in his life is a hunter. I don't know if anyone here has ever hunted before, maybe even fished, but I've never hunted and I'm not a patient man for fishing. But if you've hunted or fished, the goal is the same, to catch your prey. And in, and in order to catch your prey, I've seen enough videos that hunters will intentionally dress a certain way. They will wear camouflage so that way the deer or whatever animal they're hunting cannot see them. Then they will choose their weapon of choice, a bow and arrow, a rifle perhaps. And then they will choose the day and time because day and time is very, very important in finding your prey. Uh, My best friend, Jerome, or one of my good friends, uh, Jerome, who loves to fish. uh, When we went, uh, when I lived in Houston as a teenager, he would wake me up at 2 a.m. in the morning. And this is why I don't like fishing. He'd wake me up at 2 a.m. in the morning and he'll say, let's go to Galveston. Galveston's like 45 minutes south of Houston. And then we get to Galveston. It's about 3 a.m. in the morning. And he's telling me to get this tool. And I don't even know what that tool is anymore because I don't like fishing. And he'd tell me to give it to him. But at 3 a.m., it was important to be out there so that way we can catch the best fish. Hunter's mentality. That's saw. He's not wearing camouflage. He doesn't have a rifle, but what he does have is his hatred towards the early church members. He has his passion. He now has his commission and his letters that says he has 
permission to be up there to take Christians and arrest them. Hmm. Verse 3, we now come to his journey to Damascus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I often wondered why. Let's do a quick compare and contrast with Stephen and Saul. Both have an experience, an out of this world experience. Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Saul instead sees a bright light, a flashing of bright light that tells us here it surrounds him, right? These aren't visions, mind you, because the Bible is very intentional that if someone is having a vision, it tells us that they're having a vision. Like if you go to Acts chapter 10, uh, we studied that together in one sermon. I talked about how Peter and Cornelius were prompted to come together by God. Remember that sermon? And in that sermon, I also mentioned that Peter received a vision from God, that he fell into a deep sleep, into a deep trance. And in this vision, he saw a blanket coming down. And the four corners of this blanket opened and all these animals came out. Remember that? It's very specific. The Bible in Acts chapter 10 says that he had a vision. This one, with Stephen's experience of seeing Jesus at the right hand of God, and with Saul uh, seeing this bright light, this is an out-of-the-world experience. A physical experience that I know is physically happening, because in verse 7 it says, The men traveling with with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. So there's, they're witnessing something too. It might've happened too fast that they didn't see the light, but nonetheless, this is a very physical experience for Saul. Now, why should it have been a light? Why was it a light that Saul received? I think this is just my, my guesstimation I think is because Saul is in such a dark spiritual part in his life, he needed light to get out of it. Saul was in a spiritual dark moment in his life. Following so blindly, thinking that what he was doing was right, but all this time it was wrong. And so this light needed to come from heaven. This light needed to get his attention. This light needed to surround him that it it would knock him off of his horse or animal or whatever vehicle he was riding on. It tells us that he's found on the ground at that point. This knocked him down. This isn't lightning. Lightning, I've seen plenty of lightning, especially living in Colorado. You see lightning left and right. 
right? Lightning can be there. Lightning can be here. Lightning can be that way. And then sometimes it's accompanied by thunder and you hear it. But sometimes the light in itself is enough to cause you to jump back, right? But never has lightning caused me to fall on the floor because it was just so overwhelming. I spy with my little eye a light that came from heaven, says Saul, that I fell to the ground. I think it had to be light. So that way he could be awakened from his spiritual darkness. He had to be awakened from this spiritual darkness. Now that his attention is there, that's when the voice speaks up. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I believe that's how that voice spoke. I don't know how Jesus spoke or what his voice was like, but I believe that was the tone. That was the volume. That was the cadence. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. See, he understands that this is out of this world. He knows this is a God thing. He knows this is a God thing. And now this God thing, this moment, it's going to be clearer for him. Because now the very person that's speaking, Jesus himself, says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, where's Jesus? Jesus died, resurrected in heaven. So with him coming to Saul at this moment in his life, affirms to Saul that Jesus and God are what? One. They're the same person. Now this experience wounds Saul. It tells us in verse 8 that Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand in the, in, uh, into Damascus. That's his companions. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Why did he not eat or drink anything? It's because Saul was in distress. Not just physical distress because he was blind, but also because of spiritual distress. I would begin to imagine that what's running in his mind are a million different things about his theology. But, 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 I thought I'd been faithful to Elohim. How can I have been wrong? How could I have been so blind? He's struggling here. He's so distressed that my Bible, and I think it says it in your Bible, tells me that he did not eat or drink anything. In the New Testament, you see that phrase more common, that when someone is in distress, they don't eat or drink anything. Sometimes you also see uh, in the Old Testament and some places in the New Testament that if they're weeping or in, they're in great distress, what do they do? They, they rip their clothes and then they have ashes poured on their head as a sign of their, uh, their grief, their distress. This is what's happening to Saul. He's blind for three days, and this is bothering him. You know, I have had patients tell me, they tell me two things when they're hospitalized. 
two things that are very profound. The first thing they say is this. How long is this going to take? How long is it going to take for the doctor to come back and give me the news that I've been waiting for? Or just to give me an update? How long is it going to take for me to heal from this leg injury? How long is it going to take for me to go through all of these treatments due to my sickness? That's the first thing they ask. And they wonder, how long? The second thing they ask is this. Will I ever be myself again? They start to think about quality of life. Because of this leg injury, will I ever run again? Because of this cancer, will I be able to, to do what I love again? These are the very same questions that I believe Saul is asking himself. How long, God, am I going to be blind for? And if I do get my sight back, is it going to be 100%? Is it going to be 50%? Will I only see in black and white? Or can I see in color? I'm emphasizing this part in the sermon because this part of the sermon, brothers and sisters, is us. This is us. This is us on a spiritual journey, facing life's, life's questions, life's challenges, just like Saul. We might even go through life thinking, yes, this is how life should be lived. This is how it should be done. We could be wrong, like Saul. We have our challenges. We have our questions. Wondering how long will it take? And if I'll even be 100% ever again. Verse 17, we're going to jump to verse 17 tells us here, then Ananias went to the house. Ananias was a disciple in, the, in Damascus. Uh, Saul is there now. Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. But I would like to venture off and say that this was the first time in Saul's life that he truly saw life for what it really is. Because now this new chapter in his life has someone named Jesus in it. I know he became a believer at this point. I know he opened his eyes with new lenses. I know that he spied with his little eye, Jesus Christ. And how do I know this? Is because the next thing that happens where it says Saul's eyes uh, opened up and he could see again in that same verse in verse 18 at the end, it says he got up. What does it say in your Bible? He was baptized. You don't get baptized unless you believe in Jesus Christ, the one and only son of Elohim, of God. 
This is the conversion story of Saul. This is our conversion story. I don't know where you are in, in your place in life. I don't know if it's a spiritual darkness. Maybe it's a physical challenge. Maybe it's questions. Whatever it is, what we can get from this story is that Jesus is a proactive God. Jesus is the one that goes down there to where you are, and he visits with you. He will speak with you. He will accompany you. He will give you direction. The beautiful thing about this story is, outside looking in, I I, I said this as a teenager that, wow, that's pretty cool that Saul had this experience on the road to Damascus. If Jesus gave me something like that, I would wake up too. Outside looking in, it looks pretty neat. But when you're in this situation, when you're inside his story, it's not. Due to the blindness that he suffered, due to the questions that he asked, due to to the things that are happening to him, the internal struggle as well as the external struggle, I point that out because that's our story. That's our story too. That's Castle Rock's story. There's someone in this community. That's why I am so convinced that there needs to be an Adventist church in Castle Rock. There's someone in this community that is having an experience like Saul right now. And he or she is looking for answers. Maybe you and I can be part of that answer. Maybe with our little eyes, we can see them, invite them, but most of all, connect them to Jesus Christ.